Welcome to Follow Your Curiosity, Ordinary People, Extraordinary Creativity. Here's how to get unstuck. I'm your host, creativity coach, Nancy Norbeck. Let's go. Before we get started, I want to let you know about a way to hang out with me online. If there's one thing I know for sure, it's that when ordinary people engage their creativity, they connect with their joy and their deepest selves come to life. I've started a newsletter called The Spark. It's a place for me to experiment with my writing and share it with an audience, and also a place to get to know you better. I'm using the Substack platform because it offers some really cool ways to connect with readers, including comments and chats. I'd love for you to join me as we form a community that supports and celebrates each other's creative courage. Because it's an experiment, you never know what sort of thing I might share on the Spark, and honestly, neither do I. Could be my thoughts on something I've noticed recently, a poem, a response to a photo or a piece of music, or just something completely unexpected. It's always accessible, always personal, and usually has something to do with creativity. The Spark is where I'll be adding programs for subscribers and listeners too, so you really want to be there to hear what's happening. It is totally free to subscribe, and you can find a link to The Spark in your podcast app. So sign up today. I can't wait to see you there. Gary Russell has done a bit of everything in media, from acting when he was young, to writing fanzines, to writing for Doctor Who magazine, to working for the BBC, to co-founding Big Finish Productions, which produces a variety of audio dramas for various TV series, including Doctor Who, The Prisoner, Dark Shadows, and more. Gary and I talk about his journey from one opportunity to the next as a professional fan, including how he's made the decision both to take and to leave various positions, why he's always run his life on instinct, why he thinks he's absolutely vital to admit when you don't know what you're doing, even when it means baptism by fire, the value of freelancing, why he wouldn't have that any other way, and a lot more. I really think you'll get a lot out of my conversation with Gary Russell, even if you have never seen an episode of Doctor Who in your life. Gary, welcome to Follow Your Curiosity. Thank you, Nancy. I'm very pleased to be here. So I start everyone off with the same question, which is, were you a creative kid or did you discover your creative side later on? Yes, I was a creative kid. Uh, I was very good at school at creative writing. I was writing plays and things for the class to perform when I was about four or five years old, much to the sheer terror of my school teacher. <laughs> um, but I was always very keen on that. And then as I grew older, by the time I was about 10, I was doing acting professionally. Uh, so I think that became the sort of the real outlet for my creativity and the writing and the and the fun side of being a kid I shouldn't say the fun side of a kid disappeared but to some extent it did that that sort of instinct for sitting down and just writing and having fun was taken up was absorbed by the whole acting thing um and then when I was at school and I was coming up to do my what uh, in the UK was in those days was O levels which is when you're about 15 years old again I was really having fun uh, doing creative writing and and uh, my English language and English literature classes were enormous fun for me. And then in my late teens, I was doing fanzines. I was creating my own fanzines and was becoming part of the sort of the Doctor Who uh, fan world. And so, uh, yeah, for most of my life, certainly as a youngster, 
uh, I was pretty much being Mr. Creative and and annoying people whenever possible. <laughs> because that's the fun of being a creative is, is you do things and, you know, my dad would say, oh, let's go swimming. Let's go and do judo. Why don't you go and play football? And I'd be going, no, I, I'd rather be acting in a play or writing plays or something like that. Sure. So how did professional acting come about? Um, I think it was done initially to shut me up because <laughs> I, I, wanted to, I wanted to be an actor from a very young age. Well, the first thing I wanted to do was be a stuntman. I used to watch Westerns. I can remember Gunfight at the OK Corral and has a gunfight at the end. Oddly, it's in the title. And there was a, a cowboy who gets shot. I think it's Gunfight at the OK Corral. There's a cowboy who gets shot and he falls off the top of a building and he drops down one floor and then hits a sort of little slanted roof over the horses and then drops and then hits the floor. He's dead. He's very dead. And I remember watching that and saying to my mum, who was watching it as well, that's what I want to do. I want to be the guy that gets shot and has to do that stunt. I think my mum must have said, that's the stunt man, not the actual actor. And I said, that's what I want to do. I want to get shot and fall off buildings and hit other buildings and then hit the ground. And I would have been six or seven at the time. And I think my mum looked at me in kind of that fear that, that, that parents must have when their child suddenly says, you know, I want to become a policeman or I want to become a nuclear physicist or I want to become a private eye stalking people with guns and knives. And I said, I want to throw myself on the top of wounds and get shot. And so she sort of, over a period of time, convinced me that maybe being hurt wasn't the greatest way of earning a living. But this was in the back of my head. And I used to do things, I used to go to parties with friends at school. And I would sit for the evening and entertain, not the other kids, but entertain their parents by doing impersonations. And, and you know, at the age of eight, I'm doing stand-up routines. <laughs> really weird. Um, and my mum would come and pick me up from the party and all these women who at the party would say to me, that's your, that's your son. You should get him on the stage. Oh, yeah. He's, he's. So all of this was going on and I really wanted to do it. And as I say, my, my dad wasn't particularly keen. He was all football and judo and swimming and, you know, I don't think acting is really something you should be doing. And none of those things worked. Because at the back of it, it was, I want to go off and do acting. So my mum enrolled me in a drama class one hour a week. And that's all it was, just a Monday night for an hour, seven o'clock to eight o'clock. Um, but they also happened to be an agency. So they were sending kids up for auditions for things all the time. And I started going up for lots of auditions and lots of auditions and lots more auditions and not getting anything. And then one day I did. And that was the start of, from the age of 10 or 11, through to about 19, I was working regularly as an actor. Was it everything Madness. you expected it to be? And more. Um, <laughs> I loved it. I literally loved it. Um, I wasn't very good at it, but I loved it. It was, it, was, it was what I needed, I think, as that outlet, as that creativity, as a precocious child who probably needed to be taken down a peg or two. So what's the best thing you do? You put them on television. Yeah, because that takes them down a peg or two. <laughs> um, but it did, actually, because, of course, then I'd go back to school and, you know, you'd be kind of like, yeah, I've just done a series on ITV called The Famous Five. And everyone at school is going, yeah, and? Mm -hmm. is, is that supposed to impress us? Because believe me, it doesn't. We don't care. And I was like, oh, oh, okay. They're treating me like a normal human being. 
that's quite nice. I like that. So I never had to put up with any of that kind. And I didn't create for myself any of that kind of starriness because the people I was with at school were just completely and utterly disinterested in what I just spent my summer doing. They were like, yeah, okay, you did that. Well, I went to France or I went to the Lake District or I stayed at home and helped my parents build a kitchen. You know, everyone did something in the summer. There's nothing special about the fact you went down and made a TV show. And I thought, I quite like that. That's quite nice. So I was always very grounded. I never became kind of grandiose about any of it, um, which I think is probably a blessing. I think, you know, if I had been that obnoxious child that goes, I'm an actor, you have to treat me specially. Um, I think I probably got the shit kicked out of me at school quite quickly by a lot of very large, taller people. Absolutely. Yeah. So I learned. So it's it's a self-defense mechanism is don't be a star. Uh, And nobody at school ever really talked about it. They all knew I did it, but it wasn't special or important to any of them. I have no, I can genuinely tell you, I have no idea if people at school ever watched it, the stuff I did. I mean, I said, I I did some fairly big things as a kid and I don't think they ever did or if they did again they never talked about it it wasn't until many years later when I was about 2021 and I would start going up to London and I remember walking around the Virgin Megastore once and there were a couple of teenagers who I obviously had never met before in my life um and they were looking at me across the sort of the LPs in the Virgin Megastore and I was caught their eye and then I carried on and then they started singing the theme tune to this TV show I'd been in and I thought are they doing that to take the mickey are they doing that because they're trying to work out if it really is me uh, and I opted for the yeah they're there to take the piss out of me and for very many years after that that was kind of a triggering thing for me and I kind of didn't ever talk about it I if people tried to talk to me about having done this TV stuff when I was in my early 20s brick walls went up I was like no 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 that's it took a long time for me to sort of accept that that's what I had done as a kid and a teenager um but while I was ignoring all the the tv stuff I was starting I was still doing my fanzine and then I started writing professionally completely out of the blue for Doctor Who magazine um one day this this nice man wrote to me and said do you want a job (laughs) okay Um, because we'd met at a convention and I think one of his other writers had disappeared overnight and he was desperate. And he said, I remember, I've still got the letter somewhere, um, where he said, you seem to be one of the more erudite and intelligent Doctor Who fans. I had no idea what that meant. Um, But I went for it and went, yes, absolutely. Um, And so I started working for Doctor Who magazine, doing odd articles for them and everything else spiral from that really that's amazing yeah so that's 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 my creativity so that was the longest possible answer to that very simple question that i'm sure everyone else answers in about 30 seconds no not necessarily (laughs) not necessarily at all good good So, so what made you stop acting and start focusing more on the fan stuff um i stopped acting for the simple reason i i watched myself on tv Uh... and went you're really not very good at this um and there were lots of actors back in the day so picture me at about 17 or 18 years old dark haired skinny dark eyes back then had what would be considered these days 
quite a posh English accent. Well, people like that in the 19th, late 70s and early 80s were two a penny to casting directors. Mm. So you had to be really, really good at it to keep getting work. And the people I was meeting at auditions were infinitely better at it than I was. And I began to realise that, you know, you'd go in and, and I always used to say that there were two friends of mine, uh, a guy called Josh and a guy called Rupert and myself, and we'd keep finding ourselves up for the same parts on every audition. And we'd look around the room and then one day I'd get a part or Josh would get a part or Rupert would get a part. And then three months later, we'd be back in another audition. And oh, hi. Yeah. And then Rupert would get the part. And then another audition would happen. And Rupert would get the part. And Josh and I, every time we said, Josh, is, uh, Rupert's here. Should we just go home? Because he's going to mm. get this part, isn't it? Uh, and this was an actor called Rupert Graves, who's still <laughs> uh, incredibly successful today. Um, but, you know, he, he, so he's the reason I gave up acting, because he got all the parts. But, you know, back then we were incredibly similar and we looked the same and we were the same age and, and we knew each other. And it was just like, yeah, every time I went for an audition, Rupert Graves got it. So, okay. I'm really not very good at this. And I wasn't, you know, there's no getting away from it. I was, I was better when I was sort of 12, 13, 14, but by the time I was 16, 17, I was rubbish, absolute rubbish. So I didn't mind giving it up. I think my mother was heartbroken, um, but I was, I was very happy to move on from that. I kind of, even when I was acting, I learned very quickly that I was more interested in behind the scenes stuff. Um, it seemed a logical progression. I had for a long time, I was going to be a I was going to be a massive film director. That's what I was going to be. I was going to go to Hollywood, direct Hollywood movies. Oh, well, I was going to direct big TV shows, or I was going to direct a sitcom, or I might direct an advert, or I'd probably direct a stage show, or I'd do absolutely nothing directing at all, which, of course, is what then happened. Um, and it all sort of pushed me towards writing, and, and, and writing became the main thing, whether it was journalism writing or book writing or whatever. It was a long process. It sort of, <laughs> I don't think I've ever reached uh, a, a career pinnacle, if you like. But people have said to me, you know, what did you set out to do creatively? Because uh, I can't do anything else other than creative work. I'm rubbish at, you know, I can't work in a bank or I don't understand how computers work or anything like that. I'm pretty thick. Um, so, it had to be a, a creative thing. And I realized that I never had a career path. I never mapped out what I wanted to do. I have lived my life from, from the age of about 20 going, well, I'll do this for a few months and I'll do this for a few months. And I'll do this for a couple of years and I'll do that and I'll do this. And, and you know, work-wise, I've, I've taken jobs. They've always worked, I've always worked in the media in one form or another um doing a variety of different things and i do a job for three years and then i get bored and i go back to freelance and then the money would run out after two or three years so i'd get another job for a few years and and every job was different from the last one and every bit of freelancing was different from the last one and in that you know i'm now 60 and that's still how my life has been um and i've never regretted a moment of it but i've never sat down either with myself or with anyone else and gone, what's my career plan? What am I doing? What do I want to achieve? Eh, nothing really, because I've achieved it all. I've, you know, I don't know that I wanted to achieve something until I've done it. And then I go, oh, right. Oh, that was quite good. I went to Australia for a few years. Completely other. If someone said to me, 
do you ever plan to move to Australia and run an animation studio? Uh, no, that was is about as far removed from anything that I would ever imagine doing. But because nobody said that and instead said, would you like to come out in a few weeks and run an animation studio for a few years? And, and you know, and I went out there thinking, I don't know what I'm doing. I haven't got a clue what I'm doing. Uh, I don't I've never run an animation studio. I've never run a business. I've never exec produced a TV show. I've never written a script for a TV show, all four of which I had to do in the space of about a week and a half of, of a couple of things happening in Australia. And suddenly I was in charge and it was like, Oh, this wasn't on my shopping list of things I wanted to do in 2013, 14. Thank you very much. But you do, you sit down and you do it and you just go, all right, that's quite exciting. And that's new. That's different. Hopefully we're all in the same boat. We're all a bit finding our feet. There must be people around that I can knock on the door and say, how do I do this? I've never been scared uh, ever in any job I've done, whether it's freelance or, or full time. I've never been scared to say to someone, I don't know what I'm doing because that's just stupid. And that leads to making mistakes. And that leads to people never wanting to work with you again. So I'm always quite upfront and go, all right, I'm in this situation. I don't know what to do. Uh, give me some help. Give me some advice. I don't want you to do it but I want you to tell me what I should or more importantly shouldn't be doing at this point. And that that's always held me in good stead throughout my life as well. This is so fascinating to me because for, for multiple reasons, I mean, one of which is so many people would say, I under no circumstances can admit that I don't know what I'm doing for a start. It's a big problem, isn't it? It, it people... is. But, but also... So many of us here from the time that we're kids that we need to know what it is we want to do. We need to have a plan. You know, the classic interview question, you know, where do you want to be five years from now? You know, the, the, like we need to have all of this stuff mapped out. And yet my strong sense just in listening to you in the last couple of minutes is that if you had had a plan, you wouldn't have done many, if not all of the things that you've done. I think I think if I'd been sat down at the age of 15 when most people are and some careers advice person had said to me, what do you want to do? What's your plan? I'd have been a deer caught in headlights going, oh, I don't know. I also think if I had sat down and written a plan and I could have done, I would have I'd still be looking at it now and go, I literally didn't do anything on that plan. I wrote down the life didn't work out that way um, because I I follow. I follow my instinct always. I follow my guts. I've always been very lucky. There's no talent involved. I've just been very lucky that for most of my life, I've been standing in the right place in the right time and come into somebody's field of vision and they've gone, ah, that's the person that we needed. Nine times out of 10, it's worked as well. And I have been the person they needed a couple of times. It's been the case that, no, I was totally wrong for something. I, I did a job because I'd worked in magazines quite a lot, uh, but I worked on one magazine which I thoroughly enjoyed as a magazine working on. But the job they gave me was as far from not just my comfort zone, because I didn't mind that, but my skill set. I mean, it really was completely off my skill set. And they made a mistake in offering me the job. And I made a bigger mistake by saying, yes, I can do that. <laughs> um, and I only lasted about it was less than a year, I think, before I, I turned around to the editor one day and said, before you fire me, I think I should probably give you my notice. And he went, 
that would look better than me firing you, which I'm about to do. So why don't we have a nice, gentle, happy parting of the ways? And I was like, bye bye. Because I just couldn't do the job that they asked me to do. I could do other jobs in that office quite happily. Um, but the main part of my job that they needed, I didn't have the skills for. And it was blatantly obvious and everything was going wrong. And I was like, mm -hmm. don't want to do this. So I, I ran away. So I can run away when I need to. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the other thing that, that seems to be frowned upon. You know, the, they're well, running pe away. People are taught from a very early age, A, as you say, not to ever admit they don't know something, which is just bizarre. Mm -hmm. um, but they're, they're, they're somehow conditioned to think that knowing when to quit is a bad thing, that, that it's a sign of weakness or something. Mm -hmm. And that, that's a very sort of, I don't know, patriarchal kind of thing, I suppose. It, it's quite Victorian in its in its outlook. Um, and it's I have to say it's particularly true with men, I think. Men are expected not to be weak and feeble and, and run away screaming. And I'm very happy to be weak and feeble and run away screaming <laughs> because I've got a very good self-preservation um, matrix inside my head, I think. But also, it's a form of honesty. I think people that stick in jobs and do things that they can't actually do and try to bullshit their way around it and cover it up and, and for fear of being exposed for being weak are actually not doing their own mental health any good, but they're not doing the job any good either because they're going to get it wrong eventually. And, you know, when you're editing a magazine, the most thing you can do is the magazine might get late or have a couple of typos in it. If you're a firefighter or an ambulance or a policeman you can kill someone by by not being sure. honest about whether or not you can and want to do this job um so yes that kind of toxic masculinity goes right back into every kind of job and people think it's a new thing and think it's a very sort of physical thing i suppose it's, it's a very physical job but it isn't it goes into every walk of life there is a thing that as a man you are expected not to admit you don't know something or you you don't want to do something. And that's terrible. That's awful. And that's why we have so many people in their 40s and 50s having nervous breakdowns these days because they spent the previous 25 years being forced to do things that they knew instinctively wasn't right for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're trained to try to override instinct. Yes. Yes, we are. We are. We are the rabbits caught in headlights. We're 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 trained uh, to stand dead still and get hit by the car rather than go. Yes. Actually, the sensible thing would do would be keep crossing the road and see what's on the other side and let the car go past. Yes. Yeah. It's amazing that anything works, considering that that's what we're all trained to do. Now absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. But you know, I think half the time when things don't work, that's why it's because mm. the wrong people i think politicians are very high on that list of you know politicians and ceos of companies get to the position in life they've got to usually through not talent um and i think there must be an awful moment where they wake up one day and go oh god i'm running a country or i'm running a department or and i haven't got a clue what i'm doing and I don't want to do this. And I, but they're too scared. They're too. There's, you know, other than the the financial recompense of they've got very good jobs and wives and kids and all of this sort of stuff that they don't want to change. Um, there is that that general fear of I can't say 
I don't know how to run this department in the government. So they stay there and they get it more and more and more wrong. And the quickest way to get out of it is to have a sex scandal and then they get fired. And I think half of them go away going, well, that was awful for the five minutes that my sex scandal was exposed. But, oh, dear God, I'm free of having to do this job. And I think that's, it's a shame they get to that stage and in doing so probably ruin half a dozen countries. But right. I do think it's all part of the same thing is, is everyone is too scared to go, you know what? I'm not very good at being a prime minister. I think I'll just walk away. Right. Right. Or a president or whatever. Or whatever. Yeah. Oof. We could spend an entire hour just on that if we weren't careful. We would be boring people to death and they would be falling asleep listening to this going, what is that stupid Englishman talking about? Oh. I doubt it. But I, I think that that there is a lot to be said for the lost art of following your gut. Mm, mm, Instinct. I have always followed instinct. I've always, if I can see something coming towards me in a job or a situation and I think, ah, no, this is the point to jump off the train, even if it's still moving. And I've done that all my life. It's partly self-preservation and it's partly knowing that if you stick around, it's going to go wrong for other people as well. You're not helping them by sticking around. And people do the whole facile kind of, oh, no, don't leave. We don't know what we do without you. And you think, actually, experience has shown me that 30 seconds after I've walked out the door and we've all had a farewell drink, you will get on with your lives and you get on with your jobs and you do it perfectly well without me. So don't feed me that nonsense because it is nonsense. No one in life was taught at a very early age that no one in life is indispensable literally no one and the only problem is when you meet people who think they are indispensable because mm. that again is is like you're you're hitting your head against a brick wall with those kind of people because they can't see it i'm very good at going no i'm in fact completely dispensable and let's dispense with me now and and that's what's kept my creativity i suppose reasonably fresh and ticking over is because i've never stuck at anything for very long. Now, you could look at it and go, yeah, he's never stuck at anything for very long. He must be a bit crap. Um, and that's a perfectly valid thing. And I'm sure there are members of my family that would absolutely criticize me for not sticking at anything for very long. But I, I have always known from an early age, and maybe it was the acting thing, maybe it was because at a point where children are becoming adults and learning about the world and their place in it, I spent my entire life working with adults from from sort of the age of 10 to about 15 other than any kids that happened to be in the shows I was doing everything was about working with with grown-ups and therefore I think that ages you I think that sort of you you bypass I I certainly think I bypassed the teenage years I, I don't think I was ever the sort of sarky snotty teenage boy that most people at my school were to their parents, and, and I think I wasn't that at all. Um, so I think I've always had a fairly good sense of things coming to a natural end and, and not extending stuff beyond what it should be. How has it been when you've jumped and haven't known what was coming next? Well, the, I would say that's every single time. If I've been in a job... I've been in full-time employment and I've jumped. It is always, I've never had any, I've never jumped out of a job thinking, I know what I'm doing, I've got a job to go to. I might be a little bit of freelance, but certainly not enough to, you know, pay the mortgage. Um, 
what's it like? Terrifying, I suppose. But again, it's a self-preservation thing. I've only done it because I know I had to do it. I don't think I've ever willfully left a job or left anything going, I'm giving this up because I can. I've given something up because I needed to, because I, I knew that that natural end had come up and either someone else is going to get rid of me or I was just going to die. You know, my brain was going to atrophy and I was going to sit there going, oh, God, kill me now. Um, I've only ever been fired from one job, or re made redundant, but it was basically a firing from one job. I didn't enjoy that very much. Um, but that's because I don't think in my head, although I knew it was getting close to it, I hadn't got to that point of, I need to leave this job. I know I was sort of going towards that and thinking, I think I've probably got another year in this job and then I can leave. And then when literally out of the blue one day, oh, can you come and have a meeting? All right, uh, we've decided to change a few things and uh, we don't need you anymore. So could you be out of the building by midday? And this is 10 o'clock on a Wednesday morning. And I'm like, oh, OK. And I wasn't expecting that. And that was a going home and sitting on the sofa and and sort of staring at the walls going i'm not quite sure what happened there um and that took a while to process and that's the only time that's happened to me where i've had to process oh god i've got nothing mm -hmm. whereas every other time i've left a job it's been my choice so even if i don't have anything i am mentally prepared for the fact that i don't have anything i mean i don't think i've ever been quite so stupid that i've left a job without having a slight plan to make sure I've got a little bit of freelance to pay the mortgage at the end of the month. But I've certainly left jobs and thought, I'm doing this and I can survive for the next month, but I don't know what I'm going to do the month after that. Let's find out, isn't this going to be exciting? Um, but yeah, that was the only time that, that someone made that decision for me. And, and I really was, I did sit at home and think, hmm, this is, this is unexpected. I wasn't prepared prepared for this i better phone an awful lot of people and say i've just been kicked out of marvel uh have you got any work going you know which is exactly what happened actually is that somebody i phoned up and said i've been kicked out of marvel and they work for publishing as well and they went oh that's interesting uh, i'm about to lose my production editor in a month's time can you survive for a month and and if so do you want this job It'd be a month, six weeks time. And I went, yes, what's the job? <laughs> and they said, you'd be a production editor on a gaming magazine. Uh, it was when PlayStation was very first launched, very first PlayStation, it was a PlayStation magazine. And I, you know, this was on a phone, so I couldn't see their face. But if they'd seen my face, my face would have been going, are you insane? I know nothing about games. I've never played a video game in my life. It, I don't never touched a computer in my life. It's all completely alien to me. But of course, my voice down the phone went, that sounds amazing, fantastic. Yeah, I'd love to do that. And that's what I was saying, that idea of going in and going, I don't know what I'm doing, but let's give it a go. Because what's the worst that can happen? They can say, okay, after the end of the three-month trial period, Gary, I'm really sorry, this hasn't worked, bye-bye. Um, but I thought, well, this is different. This is new. This is this is. I mean, I would have been about 32 at the time. And I was thinking, yeah, 
this is going to give me a new skill set. Production editing. I'd not done production editing before, but I knew how to do it because I'd worked with production editors at Marvel. Um, but I knew nothing about computer games. I knew nothing about PlayStation. I knew nothing. I had no interest in it either, to be honest. But I went into it going, right, treat this as something new and exciting and, and different. And this wasn't on the game plan that never existed. So let's go for it. And I did. And I and I thoroughly enjoyed myself. I still can tell you nothing about computer games or video games. I still can't play them. I still don't want to play them. Um, but for a year and a half that I was there, um, I was quite a good production editor uh, and, and got the magazine out every single month on time. And that's kind of the job of the production editor. So I was all right at that. I, I love that this is such a, a cool way to just as you say, try new things, experience new things, you know, stuff that you would not have expected. Life is ridiculously short. And if we don't do things, if we sit down and go, I can't do that. I didn't expect to do that. I don't want to do that. What's the point of being here? It's much mm. better to, to try these things. I mean, that said, <laughs> conversely, because I'd like to argue with myself, a friend of mine I didn't know about this I, a friend i've known for about 25 years having coffee with them on friday just casually dropped into the conversation that they're a fully trained skydiver and i looked at them but you 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 work in a hospital yes but years ago i trained as a skydiver okay why well i thought it'd be a fun thing to do and there was something inside my head went yeah actually when i was that age Maybe if someone had said, do you want to train as a skydiver? I might have said yes. I wouldn't have done two skydiving because that would have involved this bizarre idea that you go up in an airplane and you walk out of a door and there's no <laughs> ground beneath you. But I was never going to do that in a million years. But it was that, it, you know, what he was expressing was that same basic thing of he did it because it was something he'd never expected to do and someone had offered him that opportunity and he went for it. And I thought, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a sign of a life well lived, that right. you go off and you do stuff and you should never be afraid, unless it involves jumping out of airplanes without a parachute, uh, you should never really be afraid to give anything a go because A, you might like it, B, it might like you, uh, and see if it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. It's a few weeks, months, years of your life. We're here for such a short space of time. It's much better to have tried things and failed or got it wrong but at least you've had some experience and done it. The idea of going to work in a bank at the age of 19 and retiring at the age of 65 in that same job or that same industry, I should say, uh, I'd rather throw myself out the airplane without a parachute, frankly, than ever do that. And that's yeah. terrible. And I'm sure there's people listening to this going, excuse me, but I work in a bank and I have worked in a bank since I was 19 and I've been here man and boy and I have a very nice pension and a carriage clock when I retire and that's all well and good for them, uh, but it's not for me. Right. It works very well for some people and it doesn't yes. work at all for other people. And no. it's okay for everybody. Definitely. Definitely. So... Since this approach, I've thrown you, haven't I? No, I've completely no, 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 really. I'm just, thrown you. I love it. I can see your face and you're kind of thinking, what crap is this guy talking? <laughs> no, what no, is he going actually, on about? I, Jumping out of aeroplanes without a parachute. What? 
No, this is the kind of stuff I really love. I'm I'm just trying to kind of figure out because you've done so many cool things and I want to make sure that we get to talk about some of them, like how to how to get back to them. Um because you mentioned just spontaneously being asked to write for Doctor Who magazine, which seems like a good place to go back to potentially. Okay. So so yeah, I mean in the because I'm also fascinated by the fact that you seem to have had so many spontaneous requests like that come up, which I just find amazing. <laughs> yeah, jack of all <laughs> trades, master of absolutely none of them at 60 years old. Well, the DWM job came up simply because I had done my fanzine, my Doctor Who fanzine for many years. At the same time, I was editing the newsletter of the Doctor Who Appreciation Society in the UK. Um, and so every single month, I would phone up Alan McKenzie, who by then was the editor of Doctor Who magazine, Doctor Who Monthly as it was then, uh, for news and say, you know, what's in the next issue? Or actually usually what's in the next three issues because we were working quite somewhere in advance. Mm -hmm. uh, and we got talking on the phone and we would just chat. And then one day we met at a convention and I went, oh, Alan, I'm that idiot that phones you up every month on a Tuesday afternoon and makes your life hell and asks you for cover proofs and things. Oh, great. Good to meet you, mate. Yeah, fantastic. Walks away. And then, as I say, a week later, this letter arrives saying, do I want to start writing for Doctor Who magazine? Um, so I thought, OK. Uh, so Alan said, why don't you come round to my flat and we we'll discuss it? Well, Alan lived in London and I didn't live anywhere near London. But I did. got on a train, trekked up to London. Is an example of a, a new good experience. Went to, to part of London I'd never been to before. Alan cooked food that I'd never tasted before that night. And we watched uh, a French film with English subtitles, which I had never done in my life before, uh, called Diva. Um, oh, I remember and I Diva. Thought, that's, that's three things I've never done before in the space of an evening. And at the end of it, I've got a freelance job as well. Ka-ching, I'm in there. So, you know, that that's the way these things go. And yes, Diva is a brilliant film. Mm -hmm. and I absolutely love it. Um, uh, so yeah, that's, uh, that's how that came about. And then, so I freelanced for years and years and years with Doctor Magazine, nearly 10 years, I suppose. Well, oh, no, it's not that long. Uh, so I started with Alan in 83 and I was freelancing all that time. And then in 1991, I was again, completely out of the blue. I was delivering some freelance work to John Freeman, who was the editor at that point. And he said to me, I could, I could embellish this because this is true and say, actually, this was on an aeroplane. I was flying on an aeroplane with John to Scotland from England. That seems slightly wasteful to me, but there you go. Um, and I had something and I gave it to him on the plane and said, oh, by the way, that's my latest review column or something. And he said, look, there's going to be some changes at Marvel quite soon. Would you ever be interested in coming on board full time and actually working on the magazine? And I think I'd been freelance for about two years at that point. So money was drying up. And my other half, I know, kept saying, you need to get a job, you need to get a job. So I said to John, yeah, well, that would be quite interesting. Well, that was April, April 91. Finally, in November 1991, he phoned up and went, right, OK, um, we're, 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 we're ready for this now. Um, can you, do you want this job? Do you want to start? And I said, what is the job? And he said, well, it's mine. Um, I'll stick with you for a couple of months, but you take over actually editing Doctor Who magazine. And I was thinking, I've been writing for this magazine for eight years. 
I used to edit my own fanzine, which is slightly different from a professional magazine, <laughs> I will say. Um, other than that, I have absolutely no idea how you put together a 42-page professional magazine every month. So, of course, I said yes. <laughs> um, and quite brilliantly, I went, for some reason that I've never understood, I started on a Thursday. Didn't start on a Monday like normal people would. But whatever the reasons going on at Marvel at the time, they needed me to start on a Thursday. I, I think maybe some of the people I'd replaced didn't leave until Wednesday night. Um, so I started on a Thursday morning and John took me around the building and showed me everything. He was a very good teacher. Very, very, he really knew how to impart information without flooding my brain with too much of it, but giving me what I needed. Very good, very clever man. Um, and that was fine. That was the first day. And then on the second day, which was a Friday, we're sitting there at four o'clock in the afternoon on the Friday. He says to me, Right, so we've got to finish off Doctor Magazine issue 183 and start 184. And I went, okay, that's, that sounds cool. Yeah, all the stuff seems to be coming in and it all seems to be there for 183 and there's a bit for 184. Yeah, that sounds good, John. He said, good, I'm glad you think that. Um, I'm flying to America for two weeks tomorrow. So you now know everyone in the building. Good luck. And he disappeared and went on an airplane to go to Visions in Chicago and stay there. And I remember sitting there at about six o'clock on that Friday night after he'd gone home. And we had a big, we were in a big room with about 10 other people from other magazines. And I just sat there looking at them all. And they were looking at me in a kind of, did he really just go on a plane to America and you've been here less than 48 hours and tell you you've got to put a magazine together? And I was like, yeah, so Monday's going to be fun. And I went in Monday morning. And that's really, that's the point, I think, where I learned to go, I don't know what I'm doing. And I literally went to the designer and I went to the marketing people and I went to various other people in this building and said, right, I've got to get this magazine done and off to the printers by Wednesday. I've got all the bits. Can you tell me what I need to do to make that happen? And they were all brilliant. They said, do this, do this. Nobody actually showed me or did it for me, which is what I'm kind of hoping. Um, <laughs> but they all kind of chipped in and said, oh, you need to do this. Then that person can do that. And that person will then be able to do that part of the job. And then that film will come out. Because this is, you know, there's no computers, not DTP. This is physical magazines, mm -hmm. cutting up things with scalpels, gluing them down, sending off these massive, great big A3 sheets of cardboard with, with stuff glued on them, all off to a printer who was somewhere else in London and would send a bike to pick things up and then return them later that afternoon as four sheets of film, which had to be then checked and held up to the light and make sure the CMYK all match and all of this stuff. All this stuff that I didn't know on the previous Thursday by Monday was sinking into me and going, this is great and utterly terrifying. <laughs> but I got issue 183 of Doctor Who Magazine out to the printers and it came back and John came back from America and he looked at it and went, well done, very good. I've now got a new job upstairs in another department off you go and he sort of kept his sort of fatherly eye over me for the next couple of months really um and would occasionally come down and go listen i i've just been talking to the designer or i've just been talking to the people production team or whatever you know uh you've you've got to do this and that's kind of important this month and i was like oh yes they're called barcodes aren't they they are quite kind of important <laughs> um and things like that but you know Brilliant baptism of fire. Best thing he could have done. Um, so, yes, that's how I got into Marvel UK. And, and I stayed there. I only stayed there for about three years in total before they 
new management came in and decided that everyone who'd worked in the building for more than two years needed to be got rid of on a Wednesday morning, which is what they did. Um, and we all went bye-bye. But that was it was a fun through. I'll tell you, uh, I'm not going to upset anyone else because I've said this to their faces enough times. I've had lots of brilliant jobs in my life, really have lots of brilliant jobs. But Doctor Who magazine working for Marvel UK in the early 90s was the most fun I've ever had in my entire life. It was just brilliant. It was wonderful, good fun. It was so creative, so many interesting people, lots of frustrating people. Um, <laughs> but it was lovely. It was really lovely, and I enjoyed every minute of it. So how much did you get to indulge your fan side versus having to actually, you know, keep everything rolling in in a job like that? That's interesting. Um, hmm. I don't know because I'm not quite sure where one ends and the other begins because mm. you have to, for, for that specific job, the worst thing you can ever do is appoint a, it's not the worst thing you can do actually because there have been many of them. At that point when there was no series on air, which is when I took it over, uh, you had to have a fan doing Doctor Who magazine. There'd be no point in, in having That's someone true. who didn't know the series backwards because with no current television show, you'd just sit there and go, I haven't got a clue what I'm going to fill these pages with. I got, by this point, 15 years of fandom behind me. I knew all the writers, all the artists. Uh, the comic strip was taking care of itself. Um, so I, that that was the fan side of me indulging, was giving people work. And saying, you know how I used to write for my fanzine? Well, now you can do it. And I can give you give me an invoice and, and I do this thing called paying you to write this <laughs> shit. And they're like, oh, I like that idea. Um, and then at the end of every month, I got paid as well, which was kind of weird. Um, but the, 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 there is no dividing line, I think. I think I just was a fan who, and, and I think this is true. I would say this is true right up to this very day. I'm a Doctor Who fan who has been exceptionally lucky uh, to get paid to be a Doctor Who fan. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, the, you know, my, my passport says that I'm a writer-producer. Uh, well, actually, it doesn't because they don't do that anymore. But last time I had a passport that required you to put your job, it said writer-producer. Actually, what I should have put is professional Doctor Who fan because that's what I've been for the last, you know, 50 years, really. Um, and very lucky and spoiled because of it. Yeah, that's that's part of what fascinates me about you, is that you've been able to to make that work. Yeah, you know? but I think again, it's because lots of people over the years have said little things to me, little throwaway things that have actually been my core philosophy, if you like. I always remember when I was editing, when I was writing for Doctor Magazine, very early on. Uh, I did a review. In fact, one of the very first things I did for Doctor Magazine was a review of Warriors of the Deep, <laughs> in which I basically slated it and said it was a pile of shit. And when it was published, there was one line in it, which I remember so clearly, where I'd written, by no stretch of the imagination could, you, could anyone possibly call Warriors of the Deep a good story. And John Nathan Turner had blue penned that. So what was printed was Warriors of the Deep is a good story. Oh. And I was thinking that is exactly the opposite of what I wrote. And I remember saying to Alan McKenzie, the editor, I don't get it. 
you you allowed him to make that change and oh, okay he's a producer and if he doesn't want to be criticized well we find different ways of doing it and alan said to me he said no i totally support what john did there he said because this is not a fanzine this is a professional magazine people are going into their news agent wa smith every single week and paying 40p for doctor who monthly which at that time was a lot of money the last thing they want to do is go home, read a magazine, and be told they're complete idiots for spending 40p on a magazine about Doctor Who because Doctor Who's crap. So that's not how we sell magazines. And that little lesson very early on, freelancing for DWM, taught me and gave me a philosophy completely that it doesn't matter if you don't think something is very good. People are paying money to buy your magazine and they're not going to keep paying money month in, month out if every time they open the magazine, they're told they're idiots because, frankly, the thing they're spending the money on and watching TV, the guys in the official magazine think is rubbish. So it was always my philosophy on DWM is that I tried. It was different with things like books and things like that and, and videos of old stories and things. But anything that was vaguely current, anything that was vaguely new and exciting, which luckily, as I say, there was no TV show for me, so I didn't have too much of a problem with that. But my philosophy was always upbeat and positive, upbeat and positive. If you're going to find a negative, you equate it with two positives. I just don't want negative, negative, negative. You want, this is shit, but this is brilliant, and this is even more brilliant. And that was what I used to say to writers and things. And that's been a philosophy I've generally held on to in everything I've ever done, including my own writing. I always have that in the back of my head, is nobody wants you to be smug and clever and, and, and think you're being arch and funny, when actually what you're doing is implying to them they're a bit stupid for liking something that, you, that the professionals say isn't. Um, so that's kind of... I. I kept that with me, certainly all through my years on Doctor Who magazine, but I've kept that with me forever, really. And that's, that's... I don't think that answered your question in any way, shape or form. <laughs> uh, and I'm not quite sure how I got into rambling on about that. That's okay. But there you go. That's all there right. There you go. I ramble. I'm sorry. That's okay, because it's, it's an interesting thing, especially for, for people who aren't necessarily Doctor Who fans who might be listening to this. Warriors of the Deep is a story that is overwhelmingly Crap. derided as one of the worst Crap. ever and and it's yes. it's one that that i sometimes wonder about you know like if if the production had been better would we think of it as a better story or yes i mean obviously know, we would because you know. it's actually the heart of it. it's got quite a good script it's just very right. badly made and 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 slightly pointless but i think you know i've worked in i've worked Professionally on things for Star Trek. I've written about Star Trek and I've written about Star Wars and I've written about countless other TV shows. And that same philosophy has always stuck with me of if you're going to be say something negative, say something, say two positives in the same breath. Mm -hmm. But really and truly try not to be negative, try and be constructive. Because whatever you're writing about, somebody somewhere, there's two things going to come out. One, somebody somewhere likes it, even if you don't. And they don't want to be told they're idiots for liking it. And also, this issue of Doctor Who magazine or whatever it is your your work is in is the first one for someone. Ooh, and you want them to come point. back next month. And if they think, oh, my God, I've picked up this great magazine. Oh, they don't like that. Oh, they don't like that. Oh, oh. they throw it on the floor and don't buy another one. Um, ev everything is somebody's ent entry level. So the last thing you want to do is is put them off in the first breath. That's and that's my point. philosophy. of, And I know lots of other editors, including other editors of Doctor Who magazine, who absolutely don't agree with that philosophy and think it's perfectly fine to slag everything off. 
Um, but I, it's not me. I, I can't do that. And I think you can do it in fanzines, but you don't do it when people are going into WH Smiths and buying things on a newsstand. Because there's a difference between yeah. a couple of hundred people buying a fanzine who know what they're getting and 25,000 people who, who, if they don't keep buying it month after month, you lose your job and the company goes out of business, which you don't really have with a fanzine. Nobody goes out of business with a fanzine. Um, so, you know, the, there's a lot of important things to bear in mind. Well, and in the age of the internet, and back when you were there, it was Usenet for those who even knew that that existed. These days, it's Reddit or Twitter. You know, you, you can find all of the negativity really easily online. Yes, yes. And I have done my level best, and I have not always succeeded, but I've done my level best on social media. I don't ever be hypercritical of particularly Doctor Who, particularly modern Doctor Who. Uh, partly because also I know a lot of people involved in it and I just think it's rude to go on social media and, and say, oh, I think that episode of Doctor Who that you made is utter shit. Uh, so I just don't I don't bother commenting. I'm quite negative about lots of other things, particularly politicians. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I don't know them and I don't work for them. Um, but, yeah, I just think, I think we have a, a responsibility when you're put in a position of editorial power, if you like, I think you have a responsibility to your readers and to the people paying your salary to find a happy balance that keeps everybody happy. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't think that you want to sugarcoat things necessarily, but, you know, finding that balance. Well, again, I used to know, say to people that of- were working for me that it's very easy to write a negative review of something and it takes work to write a positive review. If, mm. if I've asked someone to give me 3000 words on something and, and they want to write 3000 negative words, they can knock that out in half an hour because it's dead easy. Mm. If I turn around and say, no, I want it positive. That's going to take me four days because it's hard work to be positive. It's hard work to, to only see the good in something well, I think they should work hard and, you know, if I've given them 3,000 words, they can bloody well take four days to do it and, and give me something positive. There'll still be negativity in there because that's inevitable, but they'll have balanced it. They'll have written something balanced and intelligent rather than something that looks like it came out of a fanzine in 1982. Yeah, when you write it in five minutes, it's it's never going to be balanced and it's no. It's not fun to read the thing that somebody, the negative thing that somebody wrote that's in five right. minutes. That's right. You feel dirty almost. You're kind of like, oh, mm-hmm. why are you saying that? Oh, that's not necessary. What about, and, and because I've been around for, you know, 150 years now, um, and I've worked with millions of totally different people, I have seen, and, you know, before social media, before the internet, really, it's slightly different because you've got time to digest and think about what you write. And also as a reader, you've got time to digest and think about what you've read. When the internet comes along and particularly, you know, back in 2006, seven, when Facebook and Twitter first burst into life, the, the immediacy of that offensiveness, you, I just saw the effect it had on people who hadn't been around and dealing with fandom and things for as long as I had who were absolutely destroyed by it. And you turn around and go, look, here's 40 positive comments. And they go, yeah, but there's that one that's really spiteful and mean and horrible, and that's the one I'm remembering. And you're like, 
do not understand that those 40 comments represent the majority. They represent the, the, the median. And that is one sad little nobody sat in their mum's basement being a complete tosser because they can. But no, that's what you focus in on. That's, that's what you remember. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had that when my, you know, when I first started writing books, I had that all the time. And I found my way to get over this was very briefly for about only for about four or five years, if that even. I had a website, I had my own website, which was all about promoting the books I was doing and everything else. But the only thing I ever put on it were the were reviews of my books. But they were all the negative reviews. I sought out every negative and spiteful and bitchy reviewer. And they were the ones I stuck on my website and put any positive ones on there at all. And that was how I got used to being completely inured to the idea of negative criticism. Because you just look at it and go, it's just a handful of people. But that mm-hmm. book still sold all of those copies. And, and the publishers would come out and ask me for a second book. So my guess is that those six people who wrote those reviews are probably wrong. Or not wrong, they're not wrong, but they're in a minority and actually the silent majority were obviously quite happy with it. And that's how I get over And And I've, as I've never really been upset by criticism and I never react to it. The only time I will ever react to anything, I did this particularly when I was at Big Finish and the internet was quite a cesspit even then. Um, I would always come in on a conversation if someone was slagging something off, but only if they were being factually inaccurate. Mm. if they were saying something about an actual writer. And I go, no, actually, that's not what happened. I didn't actually ever interfere and say, I don't agree with your opinion or it's a shame you think that or you're wrong to think that. I would just go in and say, actually, that's not how that happened. It was this. So you're not interfering with their opinion. People saw it as that way, but it wasn't. All I ever did was go, I want to be make sure you're factually accurate. You can slag that off as much as you like, but you can only slag it off if you actually know the facts, don't, don't make things up. Um, and that's always been my philosophy right up to date. I only get involved in things when people are actually accurate and somebody is being denigrated for something they probably didn't do. Yeah. You'll never win in a battle over someone's opinion. And you'll never win in a battle on the internet either. I mean, you know, it's just impossible because, because you can't. So you just go, eh, doesn't matter. Yeah. When 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 someone turns around to you and says, "Right, I'm sorry, Gary. We're going to have to let you go because everything you have done has killed the sales of this, this, and this, and the company's on bankruptcy because of you." Then I might go, "Maybe those people on the internet, are right? That has never happened, um, and is never likely to happen to anyone in the entire world because of something that's been said on the internet." Uh, it's very easy to just go, "Let people be negative. Let them have their moment, tapping away in their parents' basement." Uh, because in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter. There's a lot wrong in this life at the moment, and and somebody's views about a Doctor Who book or a Doctor Who comic or anything else, you know, it doesn't matter. It's not worth getting upset by, particularly by the professionals making that stuff, because, you know, it could be worse and Donald Trump could rule the world, and then we really would be screwed. So let's worry about the things that matter and not worry about, whether or not the latest Doctor Who toy has got the wrong paint colour on it. Amen to that. (laughs) So I would love to talk about Big Finish and how Big Finish happened and whatever comes from Big Finish happened, gosh, (laughs) Big Finish happened. So so I'll do this very briefly because I've done this before and it goes on for 10 hours. (laughs) Um, So back in the 
mid 80s myself and a guy called bill bag set up a company fan company rather than do a fanzine we thought let's do audio drama instead so we set up a thing called audio visuals through that bill introduced me to nick briggs and we did audio visuals for about five six years and then in 1991 it stopped great we all loved audio drama we thought that was quite an exciting thing to do and it was very new and quite different thing to do in fandom i had always wanted to carry on doing audio drama i love it and i knew nick did as well um so randomly i had just done the tv movie novelization for bbc books i had some insight as to what was going on at the bbc with the mcgann movie and and all their plans if it went to series um so i said to my friend jason you're rich I enjoy spending your money. Give me all your money. We should set up a company and make Doctor Who audio professionally. We should go to the BBC and get a license to do what we used to do with audio visuals all those years ago and do it properly. And Jason said, that's a great idea. Here's all my money. Um, let's let you, you arrange a meeting and we'll go along and we'll tell these people that they should give us all their licenses and we'll make them lots of money making Doctor Who audios. And that's exactly what happened. We went to the BBC and we met these three lovely ladies who were in charge of, presumably, licensing audio. Um, and we went in and had a lovely meeting with them and we explained what we wanted to do. And at the end of the meeting, they looked at us and said, you know what, it's a great idea, but we want to keep everything in-house. Doctor Who's going to be huge in America now with Paul McGann and it's all going to be fantastic. So, no, we're not handing out any Doctor Who licenses. Bye-bye. So we left that meeting and they went, oh, all right. That's the end of that idea then. And then so we're walking away. I said to Jason, but I still want to spend all your money because <laughs> it just seems a natural thing for me to spend your money. I don't want to spend any of mine. I just want to spend your money. And I said, why don't we do something else? And I thought, let's go to Virgin Books and say, can we license Bernie Summerfield, who was quite popular. By that point, she was in her own range of books. She wasn't part of the Doctor Who range anymore because the Doctor Who range had gone back to the BBC uh and so we did we were, i went to virgin and i said look can we license this and they said well you need paul cornell's permission because he created bernice so i went to paul cornell and said can we do this and he said well you need virgin's permission because they published the books and i was like this is going very well <laughs> so i i sort of stood in the middle of the two of them and went you're happy you're happy i'm happy went to jason said everyone's happy let's get some bits of paper signed which virgin and paul signed bang we went off and did Bernie Summerfield audios. Cut to a year later, we've released two or three of these Bernie's audios. Phone rings, and it's the BBC. Steve Cole, actually, at that point, was at the BBC, saying, right, uh, BBC Audio need to talk to you. They've heard some of your Bernie Summerfield stuff, and they want to talk to you. To which I immediately went, oh, my God, what have we done wrong? We've used a sound effect. We've done something illegal. Ah! And Jason's going, just chill. And I'm going, ah, this might stop me spending all your money. Um, so we went into this meeting with the same three ladies that we'd seen the year before. But of course, by this point, everyone, the TV movie hadn't relit the world. And these lovely ladies sat down and said, we've heard your Bernie Summerfield stuff. It's very good. We've had a brilliant idea. We think someone should do Doctor Who audio dramas. <laughs> And I'm thinking, you're the same three ladies that we brought this idea to. And I was about to go, ah, it's our idea, actually. Do you remember? And Jason was, like, under a table, gripping my knee tight and trying to break my kneecap off to <laughs> shut me up. And he was going, that's a fascinating idea. Wow, you're right. That's a very clever idea. 
well, we like these things. Would you like a license to legitimately do Doctor Who? And I was like, but we come to And Jason's like, shut up. Yes, yes. That's <laughs> a very, we'd love that license. That again. Bang. They said, off you go and make Doctor Who on audio. And, and Jason, bless him, because I was spending his money by that point like water, um, wanted this mythical license from the BBC. He kept saying, can we actually have this in writing, please? Because we can't do anything unless we've got it in writing. I can't invest money in setting up a company. And the BBC were like, eh, it'll come. Don't worry. We're not going to stop you. There's the records of all of these meetings. You're absolutely fine. And I'm like, look, Jason, they're absolutely fine. Let's go make Doctor Who. And he was like, I kind of would like something with a signature on the bottom of a piece of paper, actually. Anyway, we made the first three Doctor Who audios without ever having a license from the BBC. Um, and, you know, we'd ha- we got their approvals of the script, we, the approvals of the covers, all of that went through, all the correct sources. We just didn't actually have an official license that told us we were allowed to do this. And then one day it turned up and Jason was happy. And I was like, yeah, well, you know, we made three of the bloody things by now, so you should be happy. Um, and that was big finish, set up, and off we went. And, and it was just because we had proven to the BBC that we knew what we were doing and we could do this. And we could, frankly, do it better than they could do it internally. Uh, and here we are 25 years later which is terrifying um and nothing to do with me and i only was there for the first eight years of it but you know it's still going it's this massive monolithic mm-hmm. company that is that is not just doctor who but is making so much quality product and i'm very proud of the fact that there i was at the beginning of it starting it off and and you know my on on the timeline of, of history of big finish i take up you know a millimeter next to Nick Briggs's, you know, six and a half metres. But I was there at the beginning and I created it and I set it up and I ran it editorially for the first eight years. And I'm very happy with with everything we did there. I'm not going to say every single play was a work of art, but I would say that 95% were. I mean, And the 5% 5 that were not works of art were utter shit. (laughs) <laughs> but, you know, that's half the fun of it, really, isn't it? And I can say that. No one else can. If anyone else says a shit, I go, no, I'm sorry. That's just not right. That's not, that's not fair. But, you know, I look at them and go, Christ, how the hell do we let, why on earth did I let that one go out? Um, but it was the most fun. It was the most fun. And again, like I'd been when I was running Doctor Who magazine, what it gave me was the opportunity to say to people I'd known in fandom, come and do something and get paid for it. And best of all, like I said, say to actors. Uh, these actors I've met at years of conventions and things, and be able to say to them, come and do this. <laughs> By the way, we're actually going to put money in your pocket at the end of it. And the great thing about Jason, which is why actors loved us, apart from the food, was that Jason would turn up at the end of the day of every single recording with a checkbook. So every actor went home from, from their set first or second day of recording Big Finish with a check in their hand. No actor in the world has ever encountered this before. Their agents were completely flummoxed. They were like... You, you've paid us. I'm like, yeah. I mean, sometimes we'd even give checks. If it went through an agent, we'd sometimes do the check before they actually turned up in the studio in the vague hope they would actually turn up. And agents and actors didn't know how to deal with this because they'd never encountered this, this payment system before. But it was brilliant for us because word of mouth gets out. Everybody wants to come and work for Big Finish because not only do you get paid on time, you get a good lunch and it's bloody good fun. Um, so we did very well. Well, that was what I was wondering. You know, when you're just starting out like that, did you have trouble getting people to believe that, you know, I'm sorry, you want me to come do what? Like, for real? 
Yeah, I mean, there were people that turned us down, not not Doctor Who people. There were certain actors that, that we went to, uh, and this is a collective we, it's not just me, there's various different directors of things. We would go to certain actors, not very many, I will say this, and they explained what Big Finish was and what we were doing, and the response would come back is, yeah, they don't get out of bed for that kind of money, you know, mm. so that's not going to happen. But that was sort of, people count that on the fingers of one hand, really, back in those days. Most people bought into it. And I think it was because the first three people to buy into it were Colin, Sylvester and Peter. And therefore, the moment you had them, right. you automatically had Sophie and Nicola and, and uh, Sarah Sutton. Um, and, and all of those people were there. Uh, and then that gave us the confidence to create a couple of new companions for people. And then, then gradually more and more, I remember, you know, I said to Jason at the very beginning, my three things I wanted to do with Big Finish was Paul McGann, Bonnie Langford and Janet Fielding. And by the time I left, just with with a few weeks to spare, I finally got Janet Fielding involved and we got Paul and Bonnie, you know, very early on. Mm -hmm. um, and it was just it was just fun. Oh, my God, Big Finish was fun. Um, it was fun for me. It was fun for all the actors, I think, all the writers and producers probably less fun for the sound designers for whom I used to say, yeah, they're four twenty-five minutes. And they'd come around to me and go, no, this is four forty-five minutes, but you're only paying us for four twenty-five minutes. Yeah, it's audio. It's, you know, we're not constrained by what's on television and we can make it, the story run its natural length. And they go, uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> we, are, we, this is killing us. You know, you're actually making eight part stories, not four part stories. And after a while I'd go, oh, I kind of see where you're getting at then. Yeah. All right then. They're still going to be about 35 minutes each. You know, that was the compromise. I thought it was a compromise. I think they just all hated me. Um, but everyone <laughs> generally had an awful lot of fun. And yes, and actors, bless them, as an industry talk. That's the great thing, is that I never had to scrabble around, because I directed the majority of the stories that I produced. And I don't remember really having to scrabble too hard to find people because I could either go to agents and the word had got back to agents that we were good and responsible and treated act as well. Or more often than not, I'd suddenly get a letter with a, sometimes with a tape, sometimes they didn't need to do a tape going, oh, my mate such and such just did one of your big finishes. If ever you want me, you know, I'd really love to do that. And I'm talking about people that you, who names that you knew from TV and stage thinking, oh my God, that person... A, I didn't realise they knew that person who isn't famous. But more importantly, they, they're going around saying, this is really great fun. I remember very clearly um, a, a very good friend of mine, Toby Longworth, who'd done quite a lot of Big Finish for us at that point, uh, saying to me one day, I'm working with this guy at the National Theatre and I've been telling him what I'm doing. And he's a massive fan of Big Finish. And he wants to come and do one of your plays. And I said, oh, okay. Uh, tell me about him. He's always he's sort of early 20s, Scottish. Um, and, and he's a massive Doctor Who fan. And I went, oh, and he said his name's David Tennant. And I went, oh, I know him because I've seen him on a couple of things on TV. He's a very good actor. Yeah, let's get him in. And, and so this man called David Tennant came and did some big finishes for us and then blow me down a few years later. Oh, look who's playing Doctor Who. Yeah. Um, but of course, you also make mistakes. So Wendy Padbury, Zoe in Doctor Who, uh, was also an was an agent by that point. She was an agent. And she, I used a lot of her people, and she would send me every so often tapes of her new young clients. 
Uh, and there was one I turned down because uh, I didn't think he was very good. <laughs> uh, who years later I found myself staring at while at work one day at BBC Wales going, oh, so you're the doctor who's taking over from David Tennant. And my brain <laughs> went, Matt Smith. And I went through all my links and things and I went, yep, yep, you're the guy I said to Wendy Pabry, no, I don't think he's a very good actor. No, I don't want to work with him. And so I had the chance to work with Matt Smith at, before he was famous and said no. So that says how stupid I am. Uh, but, you know, Big Finish was great. It was brilliant. And and to this day, Nick Briggs and the rest of them are all still spending Jason's money. It's fantastic. <laughs> um, I don't think Jason thinks that, but, you know. <laughs> he always regrets it. He always gets annoyed with me when I talk about how I went around spending his money because obviously I didn't really spend his money at all. Um, he had to put a little bit of money up at the beginning. But actually Big Finish kind of covered itself pretty quickly because we were doing things sensibly. We weren't splashing out. We weren't overpaying. Um, we we cut corners on an awful lot of things. So the, the company didn't take that long before it started roughly paying for itself. Certainly by the time we were into sort of year three or four, we were reasonably comfortable that I wasn't dipping into Jason's pocket anymore. And it wasn't even Jason's pocket. It's just he has a variety of different companies and he'd use the money from that to fund us at the beginning. Mm-hmm. But I like to say I spent Jason's money because it amuses me. I mean, why Particularly not? when I see his face when I say it. <laughs> why not? Absolutely. Absolutely. I ain't got the money. Jason? You're a businessman. You've got good businesses. You're a very smart businessman. You're an intelligent businessman. You know what you're doing. Give me money. And he did. And it was the same when I went to Australia because Australia, the animation company out in Australia, I didn't even know this when I got the job out there, was Jason's company. So I found myself in Australia after, you know, six years after, seven years after I left Big Finish, sitting down and going, oh, I'm spending Jason's money again. This is excellent. I can phone him up and say, (laughs) Jason, I need another 23 computers. Could you? I didn't need them at all, but, you know, you just phone them up and say, oh, this is very, very important. I need you to spend, give me a load of money so I can go and buy computers. And bless him, he said, go, well, you need to put this in a plan. You need to write this down. I, that sounds like an awful lot. And I'm thinking, I'm winding you up, you idiot. But I never said that. I just kept going with the joke and, and, and making him think, oh, I needed 23 computers out of them because it was funny. Funny to imagine at the end of a phone, his little face all scrunched up, thinking, why is Gary spending money? Um, but it's my hobby. My work is Doctor Who. My hobby is is trying to bankrupt Jason Hay Gallery. It's a great hobby, and I've been doing it now for years. Hey, if it, if it works and you have that kind of relationship where you can do yeah. that, yeah. it just makes it that much more fun. Yeah, I think so. He probably wouldn't agree, but I think so. <laughs> So you went from Big Finish to the BBC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) That was weird, I can tell you. That was unexpected. Um, I was doing a book for for BBC Books called Doctor Who, The Inside Story. And so I was coming up to Cardiff all the time and interviewing people. And at the end of most of the interviews, I then went to Russell and said, right now I want to interview you because I've interviewed everyone else uh so i've got everyone's stories and ideas and i want you to tell me whether they're right or wrong um and whether they've misinterpreted and, and what you think about this this and, that. and we're, we're just lovely sort of six hours up in manchester in his house in manchester and this was russell um, t davis who was in charge russell t. at the time yeah yes 
That's right. And uh, he just casually said to me, you know, oh, how much longer are you going to stay at Big Finish? You know, saying this to me whilst behind him on the shelves behind him is every single Big Finish that's ever been made because he's a huge fan. Um, he was lovely because when the show came back, I was really worried that this is going to kill Big Finish. And he phoned me and, and he phoned me at one Friday night out of the blue and just said, right, just to let you know, in about 10 minutes on the nine o'clock news, it's going to be announced that I'm bringing Doctor Who back. And I just want you to know that you don't need to worry. No one's going to try and shut Big Finish down. I'm just telling you that with conversations being had, you're absolutely fine. I was thinking if you put Doctor Who back on television, no one's going to need Big Finish. You know, mm. luckily that I was wrong and, and he was right. Um, but I've always I've known Russell for for about I think I met Russell for the first time in the year 2000. So I'd known him. Um, so it was nice to be able to chat. And then, yeah, so he said to me while I was interviewing him, what do you, and I said, I'm quite happy at Big Finish, but I can't see, it's eight years, I can't see myself being there forever. It's the longest job I'd ever had in my life. Um, the joy of it was it was effectively still freelance, so I could go off and do other things if I needed to, as long as everything got done. But creatively, I was beginning to get tired. I was getting exhausted. It was a one-man band, really. Me and, and my friend Ian sat in an office, basically putting out these things. Um, whereas nowadays they've got an army of 650, but you know, it was just the two of us then. Uh, and I was tired and I was exhausted. And I said to Russell, what I'd always wanted to do really was be a script editor like Terence Dix or Eric Sabin, you know, and, and do what they did on TV, which isn't how television works these days. A script editor has absolutely no control over things like that whatsoever. Um, but that's how they did it in the seventies. Anyway, the next time I'm up in Cardiff and I was interviewing some, somebody random, um, a man I'd never met before suddenly called me into his office and said oh my name's Matthew and I'm head of uh something not head of drama um but he was sort of responsible for looking for new things for the drama department to do I can't remember what the title is which is embarrassing and and he was just chatting to me and and he said you know about Big Finish and you've been doing the book with Russell and you wanted to be a script editor and he told me all the things that script editors did these days rather than what they did back in the 70s and 80s and I'm taking all this in and he said, yeah, so um, when do you want to start? <laughs> I'm sorry? Was it a job interview? And he said, well, it wasn't the beginning. It's kind of turned into one, hasn't it? And Russell and Julie really want you. And they asked me to sound you out. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, right, when can I start? Well, I'm... So anyway, that happened. And then I I think he said, go away and think about it. Well, before I got to the door of the office, I already had thought about it. I kind of turned around and went, yes, obviously. Why am I going to say no? Of course I'm saying yes. So that was on a Wednesday. On the Thursday, I was back in London, and I phoned Jason up. I said, I've got some news for you. And he went, <laughs> it better not be bad news. I said, well, he said, look, I don't care what it is, so long as you're not going to tell me that Russell's offered you a job on Doctor Who. Well, <laughs> and he went, when do you start? And I went, Monday, and this was Thursday, um, and that was fun. Um, but luckily, what the BBC had said to me was that I would do uh, three days a week in Cardiff, and I could do two days a week still for Big Finish and, and do a gradual handover and finish all the projects I was doing. for. That would take me about another three months, I think. Um, and that was a really nice thing for them to do, actually. They, that was really kind of the BBC to let me do that. So, yes, there was a big handover period between me and Briggsy. Um, and then one 
Autumn Day, I did my last ever production uh, for Big Finish as a producer. And we sat there and went, oh, well, that's that then. And then I was in Cardiff full time and, and I moved to Cardiff and I bought a house in Cardiff, which is what I'm talking to you from at the moment. Um, and I fell in love with the city. And although I left the, the BBC in the end in 2011, um, other than a very brief trip to Australia, um, I say brief, it was three years. <laughs> but, you know, I've been in this house the whole time. And, and you know, I love it. I love Cardiff. I will never leave Cardiff. I think it's the greatest city in the world. That's um, cool. And it's it's a creative city. It's a very arty city. It suits me. Wales suits me because it's a very left-wing country. Um, we've always had left-wing governments here. Um, I don't think the Conservatives ever run Wales, ever. Um, or not since about the 18th century. Um, so I quite like it here. It, it just it suits my needs. It suits me. Um, so, yeah, I shall probably stay here until... I croak or until the storms one day knock this house down. We've got terrible weather here. Absolutely terrible. It's one thing I miss about Australia. I actually miss lots of things about Australia. But the thing about Australia is it was warm. Even when it was sheeting with rain, it was warm in Australia. And, and since I came back from there, I have noticed how cold the UK is. And it's one thing that I can't deal with anymore. I never had this problem before I went there. Now I find cold really like, I want to die. Um, so I resent that, resent the cold very much. Uh, but yeah, that's that's my life in a nutshell, really. So what are you up to these days? Well, uh, I, when I came back from Australia, very quickly we were asked to do animating Doctor Who missing stories for BBC Studios. So we did Fury from the Deep and Galaxy 4. And then the bottom was Snowmen, and we all kind of decided but I specifically decided that that was enough. That was three and a half, nearly four years through COVID. Um, exceptionally bizarre circumstances, trying to make these things work with a studio in India and a co-producer in Australia and a co-producer in America and a post-production team in Australia and Jason and I here in England. Um, so it was seven days a week, probably about, I don't know, eight hours a day trying to get all this stuff working. Um, it was difficult. It was exhausting. And I did it for three and a half years. And at the end of it, the end of a bonus, I went, oh, I'm literally dying on my feet here. So I brought that, that came to an end for me. I think obviously the world has carried on doing animations, but not for, not with Big Finish. Um, and since then, I've just been doing little bits of freelance. It's not been the world's greatest year for me, actually. Um, but that's the freelance curse, isn't it? You, you have years where you've got plenty of work. And you have a year like I've had this year, which has been also almost non-existent with work. But that's your choice of being a freelancer. If you're going to be a freelancer, then you have to put up with the rough with the smooth. And I've had a very lucky 59 years of being a freelancer. So the 60th year has been a bit, eh. hopefully the 61st will be better. It doesn't, it's, that's, you have to have that philosophy. As a freelancer, if you sit down and really sit and examine how sh it work is you throw yourself off a bridge and go that's it i'm never going to work again uh so i don't think along those lines i just take each day as it comes that's it is a bit like instead of being a 60 year old i'm feeling at the moment i'm a bit like a 16 year old mm. sort of scrabbling around and 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 you know living out of baked bean cans uh but it's kind of fun as well it's it's that whole thing of nothing is ever the same no no one day is the same as the next uh and i think 
that's very important. I think that keeps you alive. I I couldn't. I don't know why I do. If I'd been a normal person in a normal job, looking here at sixty and thinking in six or seven years I have to retire, and thinking what do you do with retirement? And, and oh, Jesus, that's a, an appalling thought. The idea that I would ever retire is is anathema to me. Uh, you, you just keep working. I might okay if you got a pension, which I have or will have. Uh, it's nice because you can maybe not have to worry quite so much about paying the mortgage every month because the pension will go towards that. And uh, you can pick and choose what you do more. But I, I've always said to my, I've had a financial advisor for a bazillion years, and I've always said to them, I, I can't imagine I will ever actually stop working until I'm dead because I would be bored. I would be so bored. Mm-hmm. My, my, my biggest fear in life is being bored, and I have never been bored ever in in my life. Not even for thirty seconds have I ever been bored, because I have a house that's full of DVDs and books and toys, uh, other tragic things like that, <laughs> and music. So if I'm sitting down and I have nothing to do, actually, I have plenty of things to amuse me and keep me busy. Uh, so yeah, I I've never um, yeah I've never been bored. I'd never been bored. I couldn't be bored. I wouldn't know how to be bored. That's fair. That's actually really cool. It's mad is what it is. I'm, <laughs> I do think I'm probably completely mad as well. Um, but then, you know, I like being mad. Mad is good. Mad is great. I think you can't get through the kind of, you can't be a creative, and I've never used the word creative, by the way, to describe myself until this very interview. Um, <laughs> but you, you, you can't work in the media, I think, and be a hundred percent sane. I think you know you have to have a slight, only a slight, little edge of insanity and a little edge of risk taking, a little edge of danger, particularly in the freelance life, because you're basically willing to say, "I'm going to throw myself out of a plane without a parachute." Um, which I've always said I would never do. But actually, that's what freelancing is like every single day. You wake up and you're standing on the edge of that aeroplane door and the wind is rustling at you and someone's standing with a parachute and going, you can take the parachute and be safe or you can jump out the plane and assume that the thing on your back will open up and take you down safely eventually. And I think every single day you do actually do that drop and you tug on the wire and hope, that God, it wasn't the day that that's my lunch. Well, And it is actually a parachute. That's a really tortured analogy, Gary. That's really quite awful. My God, where did you dredge that one up from? Uh, yeah. But you get the idea of what I'm saying. Yeah. I hope. Possibly. Maybe. 10,000 people are going to write on the internet. Gary Russell was talking some shit about jumping out of an aeroplane, but he said earlier he didn't want to jump out of an aeroplane. What's he on? <laughs> metaphors. I've never been good at metaphors. <laughs> That's all right. I would ask what you thought you were going to be doing next, but I know that that doesn't really apply here. But if if anyone who's listening wants to, you know, try doing the the freelance life, do you have any advice? Do it without a shadow of a doubt. Do it because when it's good, it's brilliant. And when it's not good, it's still brilliant. Because even if you haven't got any money and you're eating out of baked bean cans, you're in control of your life. You're in control. You, you, you are 100% master of your own destiny. 
And that's in this day and age is, is a phenomenal thing to do. Um, the only person you're answerable to is you and the mortgage. And as long as you make enough money to cover the mortgage, um, you're fine. <laughs> he says famous last words. But really, no, I, in all seriousness, if someone's thinking, could I, could I freelance? I'd absolutely say, give it a go. You have nothing to lose because you'll always find a job if it doesn't work for you. You can always go back into, into full-time employment. There is stuff out there that you can do. Um, but I think it's worth the risk of being a freelancer and seeing if it works for you and seeing if you like it. Lots of people who are freelancers give it up, not because there's no work, but they actually don't like the the freelance lifestyle of, you know, your, your taxes will have to be done at the end of the year and you never know from one day to the next whether you're going to get it paid and all of the things that go with being freelance. But I think it's all worth it um, because it's it's a fun way to live your life. I have no regrets. I there's nothing in my life there's lots of things i've done i think i wish i hadn't done that but in terms of life regrets about the path that that it has taken me down um i don't have regrets i i've i've lived a brilliant life if i got hit by a bus tomorrow there isn't anyone in the world that could ever say oh poor gary you never achieved x y or z i i've just been happy and i just been freelance taking jobs occasionally when i've needed to but even then, half of them were sort of semi-freelance anyway. I, it, it's just, it's been a lovely life. It's been a lovely roller coaster of a life. Um, and I've just been lucky. It's it's just been lucky. I'd love to tell you it's because I'm skillful. <laughs> it really isn't. It's because I'm very, very lucky. And someone has gone, oh, you can do this, can't you? And I've gone, yes, sometimes I can. And sometimes I think, no, but I'll give it a go. And that's what it's all about. Taking risks. Making, living life. As I say, we're not here for very long, so you live it for what it's worth. Fair enough. And jump out of that aeroplane without a parachute. <laughs> <laughs> but not really. Don't go so not really. on the ground. Absolutely not really. <laughs> believe me, I'm never doing that. <sighs> Otherwise, I think this is probably a good place to stop. So Has it been what you wanted? Yeah. Yeah, it's been great fun. Excellent. Thank you. So, well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today. Absolute pleasure. Really good fun. That's our show for this week. Thanks so much to Gary Russell and to you for listening. Please leave a review for this episode. There is a link right in your podcast app. And in it, tell us about a time when you took a leap of faith. If you enjoyed our conversation, I hope you'll share it with a friend. Thank you so much. If this episode resonated with you, or if you're feeling a little bit less than confident in your creative process right now, join me at The Spark on Substack as we form a community that supports and celebrates each other's creative courage. It's free, and it's also where I'll be adding programs for subscribers and listeners. The link is in your podcast app, so sign up today. See you there, and see you next week. Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDade. If you like Follow Your Curiosity, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. It really helps me reach new listeners. Mm-hmm.